Well, hello. It's great to be back. Really is a blessing to be back. Thanks so much, Emmanuel, for where are you? Are you in your normal spot? Oh, you're hiding. Okay. Well, thanks so much for teaching the last couple of weeks. I've heard wonderful things about your uh, teaching, and I really appreciate, really appreciate you. And appreciate Kathy and I appreciate your um, many of your well wishes and encouragement as we've celebrated our 30th anniversary. You know, we we kind of sit around and listen to this. You know, 52 years, 60 years, and it's like, you know, 30 years is just kind of a sneeze. It's no big deal. But uh, at 30 years, it's a big deal. And so we're we're grateful for the God's faithfulness to us. We obviously we've, we've been out. We took a, a vacation to England. We were there for a little while and and saw some wonderful sights. Uh, primarily in the London area, and then out into the countryside, some beautiful parts of the of that uh, beautiful country. It's a country, uh, you, you know. When we think about how much the United States is struggling, go to England and look at the uh, the spiritual state of uh, of that great country. Um, you know, apart from the grace of God, that's where all countries go, and uh, we will continue to slide if, if we don't turn to him. But it's just so important for us to remember as well, certainly the, the gospels tell us, or the epistles tell us, that we are to pray for our, for our leaders, for our president, for our leaders, for those uh, who are in uh, authority, that we may lead a quiet life in all godliness and sincerity. But the purpose of that prayer is not just for us to live a quiet life, but for us to be able to minister without any hindrance. The goal of our prayers is not that we bring in the kingdom of God to the United States of America, because God has never made a covenant with the United States or with any nation except Israel. It's uh, always fascinating when we look through the, the Old Testament and try to apply some of those uh, those verses that are clearly to Israel try to apply them to the United States, and they really don't apply. But what does apply is a principle. In fact, uh, I'll just go ahead and take the time to look at it. Jeremiah 18, if you want a great place to talk about God's view of the United States and any nation outside of Israel, Jeremiah 18 gives a great timeless principle. That timeless principle is also applied in cases to Israel but we can't do the reverse and be biblically consistent. That is, we can't apply to Israel, what to the United States, what God has only promised to Israel. But this particular principle is a principle for all nations. Jeremiah 18, look at um, verse 7. The Lord says, At one moment I might speak concerning a nation, or concerning a kingdom, to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. And if it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. And then the Lord goes on to apply that principle, which is true of any nation, to Israel specifically. So when we think about our, our great country and any country or any nation, this is the principle that we need to think about, that God 
if there is a if there is a country that that follows his laws then it will then god's blessing in some fashion will follow in that country but we have seen throughout history nation after nation after nation that had a a moral great moral beginning that took a, a nosedive and, and ended up sliding morally and as a result they are no more the great roman empire is gone you know for centuries and centuries the assyrians gone the great media persia uh, empire gone and the united states of america is right there in that same line um there's still hope but again our hope is not that we have a christian nation per se that's not the goal the goal is the gospel to all the nations and if the united states wants to be part of that praise god wouldn't that be wonderful okay well that's not what we're here to talk about today let's turn to first samuel chapter 16 kathy and i as i mentioned took a trip to england and we saw some great sights outside of london but in london there were a couple of things that really fascinated me that i don't know that i'd ever really noticed before in particular it was walking around and seeing these blue plaques on various buildings and these plaques all over the city you'd just be walking along and all of a sudden there's this blue plaque on a building that says you know like for example it says vivian lee lived here from you know i don't know and it gives the dates and it says she was an actress and it says why i should be impressed that vivian lee lived there because it says she's an actress uh, another we saw queen wilhelmina we stayed at a place where queen wilhelmina uh stayed just a block over during world war ii she came and stayed in england during in london during the time when holland was um, being occupied by the nazis so you just walk around, you see these blue plaques. We saw, uh, they have all kinds of blue plaques for different people. You think, I've never even heard of that person before, but they get a blue plaque. There was Vivian Lee. We saw um, Jimi Hendrix, Jane Austen. You know that Jimi Hendrix and Frederick Handel lived right door by, door, next door to each other? In fact, they have a, well, two centuries apart, but... They've combined and made one museum out of those two. Can you imagine two more different musicians? <laughs> George Frederick Handel and Jimi Hendrix right there together. They call it the Handel Hendrix House. <laughs> but uh, we visited that. I, I went up and looked at, I just kind of peeked my head and looked inside Jimi Hendrix's house just to say, well, I'm here, I'll just look, but I didn't look through the museum. But the Handel House, I we did look through and it was very fascinating especially to be able to stand in the room where Handel wrote the Messiah oh it's just wonderful the Messiah is one of my favorite uh, pieces and to think that he wrote it in three weeks in that room and the room is just I guess it's probably 15 by 20 it's it's not very big maybe maybe smaller than that but it was fa fabulous to uh, to be there I mean, he had to have written it somewhere, so he, he wrote it there. If you ever want to go, to go to London, there it is. You can visit the Handel House and then go upstairs and see Jimi Hendrix flat. <laughs> but I also visited uh, Charles Dickens' house, which was very fascinating uh, in a number of ways. Dickens was amazingly prolific and had an amazing affinity or, or love for his public, as he called it. 
He, he referred to that a number of times. And Dickens, after he wrote the Pickwick Papers, was this rock star in literature. He was famous, world famous. And, of course, the people around London thought him to be just, you know, fantastic. He was exceptionally gifted. But I was just really taken by his, his phrase, my public. And he used that phrase a number of times. And at one point, when he separated from his wife, he wrote to his public to explain why it happened and gave details. And I just thought, wow, the fascination of, of, uh, of how he is perceived by other people. Well, that works today with 1 Samuel 16, and it works with um, really where we are in this series in, in the history of Israel. We're going through a series in which we look at a single message from each book of the Bible, not a summary of that book or even a, a series on the Bible itself, but just a simple message from each book of the Bible. And as we come to 1 Samuel, boy, it was a challenge to just pick one message from this great book because there's so much in it. There's the wonderful life of, uh, of Samuel himself in, in his wonderful uh, uh, birth and growth there in Shiloh with his mom, Hannah, and that wonderful experience. There's the life of King Saul. Of course, there's the life of David and so many other little stories that occur in this book. But 1 Samuel 16 and chapter 17 are a well-known section, but it gives us some lessons that maybe aren't so well-known that are so applicable to our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. Samuel uh, is called 1 Samuel likely because Samuel wrote it. Samuel was the last judge in the line of judges. He was by far the best judge. He was also a prophet. And there was no king in Israel at this time, or at least uh, as things get started. Remember, as the book of Judges ends, it says that statement, there's no king in Israel. The book of Ruth fits in the time of the Judges. And so 1 Samuel, when Samuel comes along, he's the last judge, and there is no king. And as Samuel gets to be an old man, Israel comes to Samuel and says, you know, you're an old man, and we, you're, about to, you're about to, you know, die soon, and we, we don't have anybody that's going to take over. Give us a king. We're tired of all these judges. We want a king. In fact, we want a king like all the other nations. And the Lord told Samuel that this was a sin to request this, but it wasn't a sin to request a king per se. It was, a, it was a sin to request a king like all the other nations. God had made a provision for the kings. If you, if you read in, uh, even as far back as G in Genesis chapter 49, we're told that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. There will be a line of kings in the tribe of Judah. And so God planned on having kings from the line of Judah. In, in Deuteronomy, where it's even laid out what the, what the priority of a king should be. So having a king wasn't the problem. The problem was the nature of the king. We want him to be like all the other nations. We want, him, we want a king to lead us in battle, to go forth and somebody that we can follow that's going to rescue us from uh, all these oppressive nations. Well, Saul was the people's choice. Interesting, he wasn't God's choice, ultimately, because he wasn't from the tribe of Judah. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. 
But Samuel, uh, Saul was the people's choice because Saul was that tall, good-looking. I mean, he literally stood ahead above everybody else. And his first act as king, official act as king, was to rescue uh, the people, uh, some people on the other side of the Jordan River. And he did it by th- basically threatening people, by threatening his, uh, his nation. He took an ox and cut it up and sent the pieces throughout Israel and said, this is what I'm going to do to your ox if you don't come and join the army and help us uh, release everybody. Well, okay, so this is the first act as our king. We're going to follow the king because I don't want my ox, my ox chopped up. So they followed Saul, and God gave him a great victory. But it's very interesting to see how Saul led. He led by intimidation. He led by fear. And this was a king like all the nations. He was the people's choice. And when the pressure was on, Saul didn't trust God. Saul trusted Saul. He didn't lead by following the Lord. He led, just like the time of the judges, did what was right in his own eyes. Well, 1 Samuel 16, I know you've had you brush the cobwebs off. We've had it open there for a minute. Look at verse 1 as this transition now from Saul to David begins to occur. Verse 1, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. So, we won't read the next few verses, but Samuel does just what God says. Goes to Bethlehem, one by one, Jesse's sons are going to file past, and one son in particular gets Samuel's uh, attention. Verse 6. When they entered, he looked, meaning Samuel, Samuel looked at Eliab. This is the oldest of Jesse's sons. Looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's interesting they don't even bring David to this initial meeting. They leave him out with the sheep. He's the youngest. Obviously, he's not God's choice. Why? Because man looks at the outward appearance. If we're talking about what's obvious, leave David with the sheep. We've got Eliab and all these other sons. One of them is likely the one that the Lord has picked. And yet, one by one, we're told, passed by, whether it was Eliab or Abinadab or, verse 9, Shammah, one by one, all the sons pass. Verse 10, Samuel says to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Well, then who else could it be? Well, there's one more, but he's out with the sheep. Bring him in. Samuel says here in verse 11, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes. Well, the rest of the story goes on, and David is anointed in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon David from that moment on. I like this because it reminds me 
of, uh, of our world. We live in a world where appearance is king. Appearance is king. Man looks at the outward appearance, and we do, don't we? We make so many judgments, hard, fast, ironclad judgments, simply based on what we see. And we can make them fast, can't we? Uh, you know, and it, obviously you've got to comb your hair and you've got to, you know, look good, try to not be uh, distracting in that way. But the goal, we're told here, isn't the outside, it's the heart. What God looks at is what we should look at. Man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. Well, I can't see somebody's heart. True. But you can see your heart. And that's really where the application boils down in this passage. It's not so much saying that you make a judgment on someone else, but rather you hold, withhold judgment on someone else and let your focus be on your heart. That is a hard, hard application. Because we can spend an hour getting ready in front of the mirror, but we don't spend near enough time preparing our hearts. I like, or I remember Peter's words where he wrote and he said to the ladies in particular, let not your adornment be merely external, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth to God. Jesus' disciples had the same problem, didn't they? They argued with which one another, which one of them was considered to be the greatest. How do people view us? Which one of us is the greatest? Jesus said, the one who's the greatest is the one who is a servant. It's an issue of the heart, of the inside, not the outside. The world is seldom going to applaud the heart. We give awards to the externals. We give awards to, um, to what is seen, to not what is unseen. To those who have a relationship with the public, you're never going to get a blue plaque on your house that says, this person had a godly heart, and they lived here from this date to this date. It's not going to happen. You're going to get a plaque on your house if there's something impressive externally with you. That's the world's value, but that's not God's value. God looks at the heart. And here's the interesting irony. Even Samuel fell for this. Even godly Samuel fell for this. Surely the Lord's anointed points to tall, handsome, firstborn Eliab standing there. This has got to be God's anointed. And the Lord immediately steps into Samuel's heart and says, that's not him. I've rejected him. You're looking at the outside. I'm looking at the inside. Well, we see this clearly contrasted in the next chapter. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, 
while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. The setting is the valley of Elah, verse 2, or the Elah Valley. If you go to Israel today, you can basically take your Bible and stand in this valley and be able to point out, there's Soko, there's Azekah, you can, there's, here's the valley, you can basically find the exact place where this battle occurred. It isn't difficult to do, and it's really amazing to be able to stand there in that, uh, in that very place and to read this text and realize, wow, the geography of the Bible is actually accurate. And it really is. And it's exciting when you think about it because when you trace this valley, the Bible doesn't tell us, but geography tells us, if you trace the Ela Valley all the way up into the hills, it dead ends at Bethlehem. David's brothers were in the battle defending their backyard. The Philistines were trying to come up the valley toward the hill country. And it's wonderful if, if you just try to picture it that way because Bethlehem sat on, if, if you just picture this uh, lectern here as the hill country. It's the highest, sort of the highest thing. We can just call it the highest thing in the room. It's the highest point in the room, and we can say Bethlehem is right here. And then it sort, sort of starts sloping off down, you know, toward the, toward the wall or toward the donuts over there. We could say, there's no more donuts. <laughs> oh, well, to where the donuts were. That is the area of the coast, or the Mediterranean Sea. And there, it slopes off from the hill country, which is very high, and then, of course, sea level is sea level. It's, it's as low as, low as it gets there by the ocean, or by the sea, and it slopes off. And in between the flat plain of the Philistines by the coast and the hill country was, were these low rolling hills, this buffer zone in between that neither the Hebrews necessarily controlled or the Philistines necessarily controlled. It was this buffer zone uh, that's called the, the shvela, is the Hebrew word from a, from a Hebrew word that means shephel, which means low, or it means the land that is lower, but it also means humble. It's the, the lower land, and it was this buffer zone between the Philistines and the Hebrews. And it's fascinating if, if you trace the Old Testament history, whenever the Philistines controlled the Shvela, the Philistines were strong. Whenever Israel controlled the Shvela, Israel was strong. It was a buffer zone between the two nations, as it were, the two peoples. And the Shvela had, because it was hill country, you couldn't just go back and forth any way you wanted. There were five valleys. I think it's like 40 miles from north to south, and along these 40 miles, there's only five major valleys that cut east-west. And it was through those valleys that you accessed either the hill country or the coast. And so those valleys had to be guarded, because if you left a valley unguarded, the Philistines could just walk in. It's like not locking your door at night. The Philistines could just walk in. And the Ela Valley was one of those valleys. It was a major entrance into the hill country. And so to not guard that was leaving yourself vulnerable. That's why Saul's army was in the Ela Valley. They were guarding, keeping the Philistines out from coming up into the hill country. The Philistines wanted to dominate that area, and they were constantly trying to do it. They tried to do it a couple of chapters earlier with uh, Jonathan at Michmash. It's a great story at Michmash. But they were trying to do the same thing there. And Jonathan's faith 
and trusting God drove the Philistines back out. And their next effort to get up into the hill country is 1 Samuel 17. Um, and it's a good principle from geography. Have you ever gotten a principle for your life from the geography of the Bible? Well, here's a great one. We need a buffer zone between ourselves and our enemy. We need a good, wide buffer zone of protection between what is trying to destroy us. You could ask yourself some questions. When you inter interact with the Philistines or with unbelievers, who's influencing whom? Are you influencing them or are they influencing you? Which way is that valley being used? Are they accessing you or are you accessing them? Great principle, simply from the geography. We need a buffer zone. How do we guard it? Well, David gives us a great model here. The Valley of Elah was, as we've said, a vulnerable point of access. And David's brothers came down from their hometown and were uh, in the valley fighting, or not really fighting, they just kind of standing around. The Philistines camped on one side of the valley and King Saul's army on the other side. The Philistines were on the south side, the, the um, Hebrews were on the north side. And we're not going to read the whole chapter because it's a long chapter, but we can read a little bit more here to get the scene of what made this such an intimidating event. Look at verse 4. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. That's a little over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. <laughs> I love that verse. It's like, why do you need a shield carrier if you're a guy like Goliath? And he, verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Why so much attention given to this Philistine? I mean, we've got quite a description. We're told how, high, how tall he was. We're told what he looked like. Well, remember the principle we looked at in, verse, in chapter 16. Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. God sees as what man sees. Uh, God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Why was Saul and Israel so afraid of the Philistine? They were looking at the outward appearance. They were looking at the outside. That's all they saw. They were not thinking spiritually. They were simply stuck in the natural. And when we stay stuck in the natural, we are going to live lives of fear. We will be just like Saul in Israel. 
They were focusing on the outside. Well, Jesse, David's father, tells, Je tells David, go and check on the welfare of his brothers. And so, in verse 12 through 19, basically this is what happens. Look at verse tw 20. So David arose early in the morning. He's leaving Bethlehem, left the flock with the keeper, and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle lines and entered in order to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words. And David heard them. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel, and it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make, him, make his father's house free in Israel, meaning no taxes. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? The people answered him in accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, remember him? His oldest brother heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, what have I done now? Is it not just a question? What a great response. <laughs> then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing, and the people answered the same thing as before. It's wonderful that Eliab is mentioned, because remember it was Eliab in chapter 16 that Samuel thought, this has got to be God's anointed. And yet, here in chapter 17, we get a peek into Eliab's heart, don't we? And the irony is, he accuses David's heart. He says, I know the wickedness of your heart. Do you really? And he asks him, why have you come down? You know, if you were David, <laughs> you kind of want to say, well, Dad asked me to come down and check on you and bring back a report, and I'll be able to go back and say, yeah, Eliab's still the same jerk he always was. <laughs> but David doesn't do that. He responds as graciously as he probably could. Was I not just asking a question? He's up. But David sees the issue. There is this Philistine taunting the armies of God, and the armies of God are doing nothing. Look at verse 31. When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And David said to Saul, uh, Saul said to David, you're not able to go out against this Philistine to fight with him, 
for you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Interesting, the the word there for paw, paw the lion, paw the bear, is the exact same word for hand of the Philistine. It's just translated differently, but David is basically saying this, this animal is just like one of the others, and the Lord is going to help me. Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. And Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with armor. And David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I can't go out with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Now, wasn't the king supposed to go out and fight? Isn't that kind of why we got a king like all the other nations, so he can go out and fight our battles? Wasn't Saul standing a head taller than everybody else? If there is an obvious choice to go toe-to-toe with this giant Goliath, it's our giant king. But King Saul is leading a nation of fearful people. And they're fearful because they're following a fearful leader. Now, you probably know the end of the story. But what happens as soon as somebody with the guts to follow God follows God, it rallies the army, and they all have a great victory. So I, sorry if that spoiled it for you, but, <laughs> but the truth is, when the book of Judges says that it was such a terrible time because Israel didn't have a king, they didn't have a godly leader. They didn't have someone that was trusting God with the heart. They had somebody instead in King Saul now, who was a king like all the other nations, and who was afraid. David came that day to check on the welfare of his brothers, but once he arrived, he recognized that no one was willing to do the responsibility of defending the name of the Lord God. It's kind of ironic, again, when you look at the valley. We've already mentioned that the Ela Valley, as it goes up into the hill country, dead ends at Bethlehem. But if you follow the Ela Valley all the way down to the coast of the Philistines, it dead ends at Gath. And so the two men that were about to fight each other in the middle came from towns on the other end, on each end of this this valley. Why did David pick up five stones? I mean, hey, if if you've got faith, don't you just need one stone? Well, some will say, well, Goliath had four brothers. You heard that? That's true. Well, Goliath has four brothers. And somewhere else in the, the text of Scripture, it does talk about perhaps that Goliath you know, that, that had brothers. But the brothers weren't standing out there. It was just Goliath. So why did David pick up five stones? Well, we aren't told why. We're only left to guess. 
But uh, I like that David picked up five stones because even though he had faith in God, you know, you don't know. Is it going to be stone one or stone five? Uh, it's, it's, it, you use common sense but as well. Tr- trust the Lord. So, plus, five stones is all David could probably carry. When we think about David and his sling, we are sort of stuck in our Sunday school lesson. When we think about a slingshot, we think of, you know, Opie of Mayberry, who's got the, you know, the, the rubber bands and the, and the stick. But a sling was a pouch that had two ropes attached, and you basically held it, you know, in your hand, dropped with a, with, a, with a rock in it, and you could swing that thing around, and then you let go of one end of that rope, and it sent this rock like a projectile. And the rock wasn't this little pebble that you'd pick up like we did as kids. It was the size of your fist. That was what a sling stone was. And we know that because archaeology has found sling stones from various battles, and they're about the size, a little bigger than a baseball. So imagine a solid rock as big as a baseball coming at you as fast as Nolan Ryan could throw it. This is, this is why you had sling throwers in armies, because they were lethal. And when the Bible talks about uh, various soldiers that could sling at a hair and not miss, uh, it's accurate. I mean, they, they, could, they could sling at a hair and not miss. I mean, it, it says what it says. David had this kind of accuracy. This is how he defended his flock. God had been preparing him as a shepherd for years for this moment. David also refused to put on Saul's armor. I love that. David says, you know, I'm not you, Saul. Uh, I haven't tested this. And by the way, it's obviously not helping you any. So I'm just going to go out. I'm just going to go out with what God's equipped me with. And uh, that's going to be enough. So David selects these stones and heads out. And uh, you see this great contrast between the courage of David with just a sling and Saul with all his armor and his spear and sword who is shivering in fear. Great contrast between these two men. King Saul led his people by lording it over them with fear. David, when he comes to power, leads his people with a servant's heart, leads his people with love, treats them with dignity, reaches out to those like Mephibosheth who desperately need to be lifted up, and he does so. David leads with the heart, so with so much love and devotion that David could simply say at one point, he said, man, I would love to have a drink of water from Bethlehem. His men loved him so much that they broke through the enemy lines just to bring him water from his hometown. This is the kind of love that David had from from his people. Saul, on the other hand, uh, didn't have that kind of devotion from his people. They followed him because they were afraid of him. David's people followed him because they loved him. That's the leader after God's own heart. That's the one that we want to follow. And it's a principle that we hear throughout the scripture as well. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Jesus led that way as well. That his men loved him so much that once they were thoroughly convinced that he was indeed who he said he was, that they were willing to lay down their lives and all of them 
died a martyr's death. This is the kind of leader that David was as well. Well, here's a principle that I'd like you to think about and consider, and I've found it true in my life, and if upon reflection, you probably find it true in your life. And that is that even though you may not have known it at the time, God has prepared you for the battle you're facing right now. Think about that in David's life. What did he say to Saul? He told Saul, he says, look, when I was shepherding, here's how I dealt with the lion. Here's how I dealt with the bear. And God, God took care of me at that time. I know he's going to do the same in this situation. Well, yeah, David, but this isn't, this isn't a bear. This isn't a lion. This is a Philistine. Yeah, but it's the same God. And, and God's going to take care of me. Think, Pat, think back in the past of your life how God took care of you in those moments where you didn't think he could. He's going to do the same thing now against the Goliath that you're facing that you think is too big for you to face. In fact, he's been preparing you. As David practiced that sling and as he protected his flock all those many years, he was also preparing, unknown to him, for a day in which he would become, in a moment, Israel's national hero. God prepared David for that. And I've seen it in my own life. Several years ago when I lost my job, I was standing all of a sudden looking at a future that I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And then I began to realize well, that God had prepared me to do what I'm doing now for years when I, I didn't necessarily recognize that he had. But in that moment, you recognize it. And you can think through the same of your life, how God has prepared you for many years, uh, and then you realize, wow, he's prepared me, and I can do what he's called me to do. The same principle is also true when we look in the future, that God is preparing our lives now for what he plans to do in the future. So it's not just all God's preparing us in the past for the great moment of now, but God's preparing us now also for the days ahead. David's life and the principles here show us that is so. Well, let's keep reading. We've got we to gotta get Goliath dead before we're done here. <laughs> Verse 41. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield-bearer in front of him. The Philistine looked and saw David. He disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands." Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. 
David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Now, let's pause there. Well, that's got to be humiliating to have your head cut off with your own sword. (laughs) Why did I bring this sword today? Oh, that's great. I love it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted. Look at the courage that a great leader can give. The men of Israel arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Sha'arim, even to Gath and to Ekron. They chased, they chased them all the way down to the end of the valley to, get to Goliath's hometown. Well, there's, there's more we could read, but let's, let's wrap this up with a couple of great principles, and they are so essential for us because we live not in the 1 Samuel 17s of life. We live in the cracks of the margin of our Bibles where there's nothing written. We look in, at the life of, D- of David in 1 Samuel 17, and we think, wow, that's exciting. Why didn't God do that in my life? Well, the fact is, there were hundreds, thousands of days in David's life that aren't recorded. All those times, all those days with the sheep aren't recorded. All those conversations from his older brother, older brothers that treated him as this little sheep guy aren't recorded. What's interesting is that David has more scripture attributed to him than any other character in all of the Bible except Jesus. And even in David's life, it's not all recorded. We just get the highlights. And the challenge as we read biblical characters is to think, God, why don't you work in my life like you are in David's? The reality is it's just not all recorded. When you give an account of your life to somebody, hopefully you don't give them all the details because they don't really want all the details. They just want the high spots, right? That's what you share. That's what the Bible shares. But they are inspired high spots. They're the high spots that God wants to bring out. But remember, there are low spots as well. And there's low spots in David's life, and there's low spots in our lives. But the principle is is simply beyond to be encouraged that It's not all recorded, and David had those low spots as well. But David was faithful in those long gaps between great moments so that he was prepared for the great moments. David didn't leave that morning in order to go to the Ela Valley to become a national hero. That wasn't his goal. His dad simply said, go check on your brothers. And by the way, take some cheese to their commanders. He was the cheese bearer that day. That's what David was doing. But when David showed up, all of a sudden, God chose to make an ordinary day extraordinary in David's life. He was simply faithful. God chose to make the ordinary extraordinary. Now, that is the principle we've got to cling to. Don't 
chase the extraordinary in your life. God, why don't you do something great in my life? God's not calling you to do something great. He's calling you to be faithful in the everyday experience. And when it's time, when God wants to make it great, when God wants to take the day that you simply take cheese to the Ala Valley and make it great, he does it. It's not something we seek. It's something we're surprised by. But, but that God has also prepared us for. It's a great principle because we tend to look at our lives as dull, and the reality is uh, every life, even those in Scripture, have those long gaps between faithfulness. Listen to these words written by the Apostle Peter. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. At the proper time. That he may exalt you at the proper time. I love that because it, it teaches us, it reminds us that we never know what events God's going to use in our lives. In the ordinary days, he's going to use events that surprise us. We don't chase days to make them great. We simply show up and do the next right thing. What do I do? Just do the next right thing and trust God to make it great in his time. Let's pray. Father, it's tough to count how many times in our lives we've read the story of David and Goliath, all the way from Sunday school as kids and flannel graphs to today. We've read it many times. But would you remind us of the principle that we can apply beyond the flannel graphs and simply giving you praise for a great victory? The principle of faithfulness in the ordinary days. Because it's true, David never sought greatness. He was simply faithful. And you used this faithful shepherd boy and chose him to be a special person. We each have that opportunity in our lives, Father, as we look at the dull, monotonous days of non-greatness. God, what are you doing? Why aren't you working in my life? And the reality is we're judging what man sees, the outward appearance, and God is looking at the heart. So in those moments of, of uh, reflection, God, give us great hearts where our, our longing is not to have great days, our longing is faithfulness and trusting that you, in your time, will use it as you're pleased to make it great. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.